Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to read the first 10 verses. Here is what the author of Hebrews has said. Then indeed, that even the first covenant had ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the sanctuary, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which uh, were the golden pot, uh, which had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Verse 6, now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part um, of the tabernacle performing the service. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sin committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way of the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. Amen? Verse 9, it was symbolic of the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscious. Concerned only, only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinance imposed until the time of reformation. Amen. We have been in the book of Hebrews now for 34 weeks. This is week 34, and we have arrived to chapter 9. If you guys have been following for the last few months, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews wrote to people, believers, who were Jewish at some point, and then they became Christian, and now they want to go back to Judaism. So he wrote that book to warn them from not doing that. He, the first 10 chapters, pretty much uh, the bulk of the first 10 chapters, he argued the supremacy of Christ, how Jesus Christ and the church and the New Testament is far more superior than the Old Testament and the way of approaching God in the Old Testament. And his argument is this, don't leave what is superior to go what it, to what is uh, inferior, right? We saw that in chapter 1, he started by saying that Jesus is superior than the angels. That's the first three verses. Then the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2, Jesus is superior. Um, sorry, I apologize. The first thing is Jesus is superior to the prophets. Then Jesus is superior to the angels. We've seen chapter 3 and 4 that Jesus is superior to Moses. 5, 6, um, five, six and 7 and 8 and almost till the end of chapter 10, he's arguing that Jesus is superior to Aaron. And who is Aaron? He is Moses' brother who was the high priest in the Old Testament. And this is essential to the readers, the Jewish people who were, have a Jewish background to understand that, right? For them, Aaron, the high priest, is the one who goes into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people, right? So he's the instrument by which they can obtain forgiveness. And not only that, he's also the one who's teaching the law of God to the people, right? 
So the high priest is the one who is like a mediator, bringing God's salvation to sinful man and bring sinful man closer to God. So that's why the author of Hebrews spent almost five or six chapters arguing that Jesus, our high priest, is superior than Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament. In the first three chapters, five, six, and seven, he argued that the person of Jesus is superior than the person of Aaron, the high priest in the Old Testament. Now we arrive to chapter 8, 9, and 10, where the author of Hebrews is arguing that the ministry of Christ, the priesthood of Christ, is superior than the priesthood of Aaron in the Old Testament. Amen? We started that two weeks ago. We uh, saw that in chapter 8, the first part, the first six verses, the author of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus' ministry is superior because it's performed in a better sanctuary, right? The Old Testament high priest would minister in an earthly sanctuary that was made by man, but Jesus ministers in the true tabernacle that was made by the Lord and not by man. Amen? And then we have seen last time, I was here two weeks ago, that Jesus is a superior high priest because he brought a better covenant built on better promises, right? And now we arrive to chapter 9, and today we're going to stop at the first 10 verses of chapter 9. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's kind of taking a break for just these 10 verses to remind us of the Old Testament and how things were done in the Old Testament, right? And then he's going to use these 10 verses as his launching pad for the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10 to argue the supremacy of Christ, right? So he just wanted briefly to remind his readers of how things were done so he can... He can elaborate on that and show even more the supremacy of Christ and how his ministry and his priesthood is far more superior. And that's what he's going to discuss in details through, throughout the rest of chapter 9 and chapter, most of chapter 10. Amen? Amen. Now, the beginning of this, um, of this uh, thing here says this, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant has ordinance of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Anybody remembers how chapter 8 ended two weeks ago when we were here? It talks about how the old covenant is growing old and becoming obsolete and will be replaced by the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah 33. Now he's picking up from where he left at the very end of chapter 8. And then he said, then indeed, even the first covenant that he has just been talking about, right, has two things. What are the two things that the author of Hebrews is saying here? Has number one, ordinance of divine service. And number two, has an earthly sanctuary. Do you see that in verse 1? So now he's picking up the same thought that he finished in chapter 8, and he's highlighting two things related to that first covenant. Number one, the ministry related to that first covenant, and number two, the sanctuary related to the first covenant, which he pretty much spent the rest of these 10 verses kind of elaborating on, expounding on these two things. He spent verse 2 to 5 talking about their earthly sanctuary, and then from verse 6 all the way to verse 10, he's talking about their ministry, the ministry under the old covenant terms. You guys follow me? Yeah. So you see how this passage is going to go? Pretty much that verse 1 is the title of this passage. 
two points. The sanctuary, which he talked about in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, and then the ministry, which he talked about from verse 6 all the way till the end of chapter uh, verse 10. Amen? So let's dig deeper into this. Verse 1, it says this, For indeed, even the first covenant has ordinance of divine service and the, what kind of sanctuary? Earthly sanctuary. He already talked about that. When the author of Hebrews used the word earthly, when he described the old sanctuary with earthly, he's not just saying that he's comparing that to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus has entered, but he's also pointing out to the imperfection of that sanctuary. It's linked to the earth. It's linked to the things that is imperfect, that can be sinful, that is never accomplished the purposes of God. Amen? So he's not just saying that it is weak. He's saying also it is imperfect. And by describing it as earthly, he's comparing it by default to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus has already entered, right? He already went back. We can go back and see that in chapter 8, verse 2. He said this, that Jesus has entered to the sanctuary which the Lord erected and not man, right? He already told us before that Jesus entered into heavenly sanctuary. But the Old Testament priests were ministering into an earthly sanctuary. And not only that, but he's setting up the stage because later on he keeps on repeating how Jesus entered into a heavenly sanctuary and not an earthly sanctuary. Chapter 9, verse 11, which we're going to see next week, says this, But Christ, being, uh, having come as a high priest, come and high priest of the good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, that is to say, not of this building, not of this world. He's saying that Jesus came to serve in the sanctuary that was not made by hand because it was not earthly where Jesus came to minister. And at the very end of chapter 9, verse 24, he says this, for Christ did not enter into the holy place made with the hands. Again, do you see that theme running through the whole book of Hebrews? The Old Testament priest would enter into earthly, made by hand, made by man, Tabernacle, but Jesus is superior, he's better, because he entered into a sanctuary that was not made by hand of man, but by the hand of God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Now, if you look at that layout of that picture that I have here for you, this is how the Old Testament tabernacle looked like. The main entrance was that for, facing east. That's where they can enter into the outer court, the yard of the sanctuary. If you guys remember, we talked about this before. The first thing they see is the altar of the sacrifice. That's where the high priest will offer sacrifice in the morning and in the evening. That's where the sin offering, the guilt offering, pretty much all the offering was altered on the very first piece of furniture that you see when you go in. Amen? Now, you move inward a little bit. The second thing you see is a laver of bronze. It just has water where they can wash their hands and their feet. Okay? And then now you enter into the actual building, and it has two rooms in it. The first room, the author of Hebrews told about this, spoke about this here. There is the first and the second, the outer and the inner, right? The outer world has three pieces of furniture, has the lampstand, has the table of the showbread, and has the altar of incense. All this in the tiny, tiny diagram that you have. So three pieces of furniture in the first room in the outer sanctuary. Then you have the veil. 
that served as a separation between the outer court or the, the outer sanctuary and the very inner sanctuary. The very inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, and it has one piece of furniture, which is the Ark of the Covenant. The author of Hebrews tells us here that was three things inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? What are they? Let's go to verse 4. It says this, um, verse 4, which has that the, the very Holy of Holies had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were golden pot of the manna, Aaron's rod about it, and the tablets of the covenant. So the author of Hebrews is telling us that the, the Ark of the Covenant in the very Holy of Holies has three things in it, right? Yeah. The pot of manna, Aaron's rod about it, and the tablets of the tabernacle. Now, there is a couple of problems with verse 4 that the author of Hebrews just wrote to us. If you read with me here, let's read verse actually um, 2, 3, and 4. So you can have that while, after you look at the diagram and see how it works. Verse 2, for the tabernacle, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, and it was called the sanctuary. That's the room number 1, right? And behind the second veil, what is the second veil? That is the veil between the holy and the holy of holies. Why is it called the second veil? I think the first veil he, he's looking at is the main door of the tabernacle, right? Which kind of separated the world from the tabernacle. That was the first barrier. And then after that, you go inside, and the second veil is the one that, you know, separate the holy from the holy of holies. And behind the second veil... The part of the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, which has the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. So the author of Hebrews tells us here that there's two pieces of furniture in the Holy of Holies, right? He's pretty much, it appears like, he's mislocating the golden uh, altar that they offer incense on it, which is in the holy place. And he's saying it's in the Holy of Holies. You guys follow me so far? Do you see where this problem coming from? If you look at the diagram, at the very uh, last thing, right before the veil, there is the golden altar where the priest would offer incense before the Lord all the time. Now, the author of Hebrews is telling us that this golden uh, censer altar is actually behind the veil, not in front of the veil. And that's kind of a problem, right? The second problem we have in that verse is that if you go back and read in, the, in, 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 in Exodus and Numbers, you'll see that there is only one thing inside the Ark of the Covenant, which is the tablet of the commandments. That's the one thing that was inside. The other two parts, the manna and the Aaron's rod, but it were not in the Ark of the Covenant. So that's the second problem that we have with verse 4. You guys are with me? So two problems. Let's look at it. Uh, why did the author of Hebrews say that the golden censer or that uh, golden altar of incense was inside the Holy of Holies uh, instead of is just in the first room, which is the holy place? Well, let's, the best answer, there's a lot of answers there, but all of them are debatable. But look with me again to verse 4. I want to highlight one word here, very important. Verse 4. It talks about the Holy of Holies, right? And then it says this, which... Uh, can somebody help me with the word after that? Verse 4. Which had, right? The golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, right? In other words, he's saying this, having the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. So he's not telling us clearly 
that the location of the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant is in the Holy of Holies. He's saying that the Holy of Holies having these two. In other words, he's leaving us some room that he's not just talking about physical location, but he may be discussing that the, the Holy of Holies have something to do with these two pieces of furniture. You guys are with me? So he's not saying in it, the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. He's saying having the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. Amen? Obviously, he's linking these two pieces of furniture together, the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, right? And we know for sure that the location of the Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of Holies. So it's only fair to the text that we understand that these two pieces are linked together in whatever he's wanting to tell us here in verse 4, right? We cannot separate them. He has, these two pieces are linked with the exact same thought that he want to present to us. Amen? It appears to me more likely than less likely that the author of Hebrews say that the ministry and everything theologically related to the Holy of Holies is linked to these two pieces of furniture, the altar of incense and the the Ark of the Covenant. Amen? So he's not more talking about practical location. He's more talking about theological connection in verse 4. You guys are with me? You guys are with me? He's not... I mean, that's the one thing that makes sense the most. He's not talking about physical location. He's talking about theological connection. And we know that to be absolutely true. Because if you read in, in Leviticus chapter 16, before the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies, he has to go inside with that, with that uh, censer in his hand that has incense. And the Bible actually got commanded in Leviticus 16 that if the high priest will go into the Holy of Holies without the, the incense and without the censer in his hand, God will struck him dead. This was serious as serious can get. You guys are with me? Because the idea here, I think, the idea here is this, that... Uh, that incense, when it comes out of the censer, will cover the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. So the high priest cannot just glaze at it with his naked eyes, right? So that cloud that comes, the senses that is being burned, that serves as a separation, as something that kind of cover the, the altar of covenant so the high priest cannot just gaze into the presence of God. You guys are with me? So that's why he could not enter into the holy place without having that center in his hand and the incense just ascending from it all the time while he's ministering inside the holy of holies. So again, it seems like when he says, when he links the golden censer with the Ark of the Covenant to the Holy of Holies, that he's talking about theological connection more than about physical location. You guys are with me? Good so far? Yes. Move on. Now let's go to the second problem. He's saying that the Ark of the Covenant has three pieces of furniture in it, or three parts in it. He has Aaron's rod that bought it. He has the golden pot that has manna, and then it has the two tablets that has the, the Ten Commandments of God. Now, if you go back and read the actual wording in Exodus 16.33, we read this. Moses commanded Aaron to put the, the manna, the pot that has manna. He says, put it this, before the testimony. He didn't say put it inside the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. He just said, put it before the testimony, which is the Ark of the Covenant, right? And then in number 17, also Moses told Aaron to do this, to take his rod about it, and then it says this, put it before the testimony again, which is the testimony is the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God. So in the Old Testament, we see that 
Aaron was commanded by Moses to put these two items before the Ark of the Covenant. But in the New Testament, we see that they were in the Ark of the Covenant. You guys are with me? So why the difference? Well, there's a couple of explanations here. We never hear about the, the pot of manna or Aaron's rod after these two mentions in Exodus 16 and in number 17. You guys are with me? So that's the only reference that we have when he said put it before the testimony. Which not necessarily exclude that he can put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, right? If you understand the testimony as the presence of God, he can still put it inside the Ark of the Covenant and he still put it before the face of God, before the presence of God, right? So the wording does not necessarily exclude the fact that it can be inside the Ark of the Covenant. But most likely it wasn't. Most likely it was just outside the Ark of the Covenant. You guys are with me? It might have been that eventually down the road throughout the history of Israel, they, they, they put it inside the Ark of the Covenant more for safekeeping than anything else, right? Remember when, when uh, during the time of Samuel that the Palestinians actually took the Ark of the Covenant, right, from, from, from the children of Israel, and it wasn't an Israel position for a long time. So it may be, I, we don't know, this is just assumptions, that maybe afterward the children of Israel decided to keep these items inside the Ark of the Covenant more for safekeeping than anything else. Amen? Again, it's, it's more like you're trying to figure out what's the best explanation to this. It doesn't mean that you don't find arguments against it, you know, that it doesn't make sense this way. But this is the best that you can make out of verse 4 as far as these two problems. Amen? Now, let's move on to verse 5. He says here, And above it was the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. He's still describing the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this before, if you remember, when we talked about the blood of Jesus and the propitiation through the blood of Jesus. Um, and then he says this, of these things we cannot now speak in details. He's, just, I, he's saying, I can't go in details and keep talking about all of this. So let's move on to something else he says, right? So if he moved on, this also we move on to something else. Verse 6, now when these things has been prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the service, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Amen? Verse 6 and 7, the author of Hebrews is contrasting between what the priests were doing in verse 6 versus what the high priest is doing in verse 7. You guys are with me? So let's, uh, let's do it together. Let's together try to find out the contrast and the difference points that the author of Hebrews is pointing to us between verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 says this, now when these things have been prepared, what does he say afterward? The priests, priests. that's multiple priests, right? That's any priest, anyone who is a child of Aaron can enter into the holy place, the first room. You guys are with me? But how about in verse 7, to the second part, right? The high priest. So it's not priests anymore, but the high priest, right? And actually, uh, let's see, verse 6 again, it says this, um, 5, 6. Now, once these things have been happened, okay, the, the priests enter into the first part by the high priest enter into the second part. So that's the first difference. Number two, he said the priests do what? What's the second word after that? Always. You guys are with me? Yeah. Verse 6, the priests versus the high priest. Verse 6, always, that means any time, right? All the time. They can enter into the holy place. 
But in verse 7, he says that the high priest will enter how often? Once a year. You guys see the second difference? First room is any time, any priest. Second room, only the high priest and only once a year. Amen? And then it says here, um, went to, into, and then it says this. The priests always went to into the first part. You guys are with me? Do you see that? The first part? But at the beginning of verse 7, he reads this. But into the second part. You guys see the difference as well? So the first part is called the first, the, the first room, the, the, the holy place called the first part, but the holy of holies is called the second part, which is very unique, by the way. I don't recall that there is any other mention of the holy place and the holy of holies anywhere else in the scripture where they be called first and second. It's always outer and inner, but not first and second. You guys are with me? Um, Okay, so that's the first, that's the second, and he entered alone once a year, but not without blood in verse 7, right? Yeah. In verse 6, we don't see any uh, pre-qualification or any requirement for the priest. The priest can pop in anytime they want into the holy place, right? Yeah. But into the second place, there's some requirement for the high priest. He can't just also get inside once a year, but he has to have requirement here. The author of Hebrews is highlighting this one requirement, which is not without blood. Now, this is probably the most unique idea that the author of Hebrews is presenting us in, in chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 10. There were a lot of requirements that the high priest had to do in order into for him to enter into the Holy, Holy of Holies in the Old Testament, right? He has to dress in a certain way. We just talked about he has to have that censer in his hand with the smoke coming out, right? And if he didn't have that censer, he will drop dead. So there were, are, there were so many requirements for the high priest in order for him to enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. The author of Hebrews here is not worried about all the requirements, is only mentioning one requirement, right? Which is not without blood. Because this pretty much going to serve as his foundation pretty much for the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10. How Jesus, who entered as our high priest into the Holy of Holies, heaven itself, to provide atonement for us, right? So this idea here that the blood is needed to enter into the holy place, the holy of holies, this blood is needed to atone for sin is the most unique, important idea that the author of Hebrews has presented us here while he's discussing the Old Testament and how people approach God in the Old Testament. You guys are with me? Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in the ignorance. Amen? Now... The word first part, second part that we just highlighted here. Again, this is very distinctive. We don't see it anywhere else that the, the holy place is called the first place and the holy of holies called the second place. And as a matter of fact, if you read through the book of Hebrews, this is a very unique concept to the author of Hebrews. Remember, we just talked about the old covenant and the new covenant in chapter, in chapter 8, right? And how does he describe them? He described them as the first covenant and the second covenant. You guys are with me? So in, in a way, the author of Hebrews, in his mindset, he's linking the first room, which is the holy place, with the first covenant. And the second room, which is the holy of holies, with the 
second covenant. You guys are with me? He's using the same words to describe these two things. And not only that, remember he told us when it came to the first covenant and the second covenant that the first covenant grew old and it became obsolete and it was replaced by the second, second covenant, right? It seems like this is what he's trying to tell us here. Because if you read with me in verse, I think verse 8, we just read that verse, it says this, verse 8, the Holy, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the Holy of Holies has not yet been manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. What does that mean? That when Jesus come and he established the way open to the Holy of Holies, what happened to the first tabernacle? The first room, it's, it's gone, right? That's what he's implying here in verse 8. Let's read it together. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all has not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle is still standing. Do you see what he's saying? The opposite is also true. If now through Jesus the way to the Holy of Holies has been made manifest, then the first tabernacle has been made obsolete. You guys are with me. So that's his mindset. That's how he looks at the Old Testament. First is temporary, will go away. Second is permanent and is coming with the fullness of what God has for us. Amen? And we'll see the exact same thought later on in chapter 10, verse 8 and 9. Look at this. He's looking at the sacrifices of the Old Testament Versus the sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 8 to 9. He said this. Previously saying. Previously. That's a reference to a, a scripture in the book of Psalms. Uh, previously saying them. That's the sacrifices. Which are offered according to the law. Then he said. Behold I have come to do your will. O God. He takes away the first. And he. That he may establish the second. He's saying that. Talked about the sacrifices of the Old Testament and Jesus, we're going to see that later on, say, God, I am coming to be the sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice that you need, that is sufficient for you. So he's referring the old sacrifices as the first sacrifices and the sacrifice of Christ as the second sacrifices. And then he tells us his heart right there. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He applied that to the sacrifices in chapter 10. He applied it to the covenant in chapter 8, right? He took away the first covenant that he might establish the second covenant. And he's applying that right here in chapter 9 to the first tabernacle and the second tabernacle. The holy place and the holy of holies. He takes away the first, which is the holy place, to establish the second, which is the holy of holies. Amen? With me? Last you yet? Good thing I have, you have written notes. So if you miss it, go home and read it, right? All right, so again, verse 6 and 7, he's comparing what the, author of, the, the, the high priest of the Old Testament and approaching God in the Old Testament versus uh, how the priest versus the high priest. That's the point of verse 6 and verse 7. Now, in verse 7, he says that, that the high priest could not enter without blood, right? We talked about this before when we talked about how we have new covenant by the blood of Jesus. Without blood... The author of Hebrews mentioned that phrase three times in chapter 9. Three times. The first time is right here in verse 7. That the high priest could not enter into the second part. He went alone once a year and not without blood. That's verse 7. 
Verse 18, we read this. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. The inauguration of the covenant. The old covenant was inaugurated with the blood. And the new covenant is also inaugurated with the blood. But this time it's the blood of Jesus. Amen. Verse 22. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So three times in chapter 9, the author of Hebrews is telling us that three things could never have been happened without blood. Number one, entering into the presence of God. You have to have blood. Amen. Number two, entering into a covenant with God. You have to have blood. And number three, forgiveness of sin. In order for that to happen, you have to have blood. Amen. And he applies that eventually to the blood of Jesus, through which we actually were able into the, entering into the Holy of Holies. Right? Didn't he say, brethren, now we have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies. How? By the blood of Jesus. That's in chapter 10, verse 19. And the first covenant was the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. And the blood of Jesus is the blood of the covenant that the author of Hebrews talked about as well. And then he said, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And he tells us later on in chapter 9 how Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has put away sin through his blood once and for all. Amen? So he established that theology of the New Testament here that without the blood of Jesus, pictured and symbolized by the blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. There is absolutely no approaching to the presence of God or having a covenant with God or having our sins forgiven before God. All right. Now, verse 7. Look at this. He said that, uh, let's actually read it together. Verse 7, a very, very interesting way of doing things that the author of Hebrews. Verse 7 reads this. Um, and into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year. Look at this. Not without blood, which he offered. Do you guys see that? When he say offered, what is he referring to? What, is, what did the high priest offer here in verse 7? He offered the blood, right? It says this. He could not enter into the holy places without blood, which he offered. So what is he offering? He's offering blood. the blood. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. And that is a very unique way of describing that, that the work of the blood inside the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, whenever we read the word offered the blood, we see that the, uh, the high priest would sprinkle the blood, would spray the blood, but we never see that he offered the blood. You guys are with me? Even in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we never see the word offered in, in link to the blood. It's always sprinkle the blood, spray the blood, but never offered the blood. You guys are with me? So the author of Hebrews here is on purpose changing the word and say that the blood was not just sprinkled before the presence of God. It was offered to God. Why? Because he's setting up the stage because in the rest of chapter 9 and chapter 10, many times he's going to talk about Christ being offered to God as our sacrifice, as our substitute. Amen? So he's now by switching, intentionally changing the wording of the Old Testament theology, he's setting up the stage for us to look forward into what Christ will do when he comes to be the ultimate sacrifice. You guys are with me? Yeah. Amen. And then it says this in verse 8. Thus uh, the Holy Spirit indicating this, right? So he's saying that the way God or the Holy Spirit inspired Moses and, and Aaron and the tabernacle and everything in the Old Testament, that was 
the very intentions of the Holy Spirit. These are not just random thoughts or random things that Moses did or random things that God randomly came up with for Moses to earn to approach him. There is a purpose for all of this, right? The Holy Spirit was orchestrating all of this, even from the Old Testament. You guys are with me? So what he's telling us is this. It's not just these things were shadowed to the things to come, but the Holy Spirit in purpose made these things even for the people who didn't understand it at that time because the very fulfillment and the actual meaning were coming down the road. You guys are with me? Think about it. I bet you Aaron or Moses, when they had they have to take the blood and go sprinkle it onto the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, they didn't know what that means, right? Why do you need blood? What's the point, right? They just did the rituals without understanding the meaning behind it, right? Because all these were something the Holy Spirit has intended for you and me to understand down the road, right? So we can look back and see what these things meant. But for the people who did it, they probably just did the rituals out of obedience without fully understanding the purpose and the meaning of what they were doing. You guys are with me? Absolutely. 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 Verse 8, the rest of the verse saying this. Thus the Holy Spirit indicating that the way to the holiest of whole has not yet been manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. What does that mean? That the, the access to the holy of holies, the presence of God, has not yet been manifest. He's saying that the reason why people could not just have free access to the holy of holies, because the first place, the, tab, the, the holy place, was still there, Right? And that's what made access to God. The first tabernacle is what made access to God very difficult. You guys are with me? Why? What is he talking about here? I think he's more talking about the veil. The one that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. He's saying as long as that veil is there, right? And the room is broken into two because of the veil. The front and the inner, the first and the second, as long as the veil was there breaking the holy, the, the, the holy sanctuary into two rooms, the outer and the inner, then we know for sure that there is no free access to the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. You guys are with me? But once that veil is gone, then there is no more first and second room. There's only one room now. Do you guys follow me? That veil made the presence of God into two rooms, outer where nobody can enter easily, uh, where everybody can enter, but the inner is where nobody can enter easily, right? But if the veil is gone, there, there is no more two rooms. There's only one room, and it's all where the presence of God is. Amen? With me? Yes. All right. Again, we're just, this is all like setting the stage for the next few weeks. So it's uh, a little bit difficult, but it's very important. Verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which make him who performed the service, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscious. The words, the one who performed the service, is not just an indication or a reference to the priest, but really to anybody who offers sacrifices in the Old Testament. You guys are with me? It literally means the worshiper. Because you know that People in the Old Testament will bring sin offering and, and offer it at the very first altar, right? This is somebody who want to worship God or have a peace offering or any sort of offering. So the offering was not just offered, it was always offered by the priest, but not only for the priest. It's for the priest and everybody else who want to bring an offering to God, right? Anyone who want to draw near to God. 
So the author of Hebrews is telling us this, that all the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was not able to make the one who's trying to draw near to God, to worship God, perfect in terms of his conscious. You guys are with me? So he's saying this. Have you ever committed a sin and you come to church and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm here, but I don't even want to raise my hands because I just feel the filthiness and the uncleanness of sin that I have committed, right? You see everybody else in the church jumping and dancing, and you're just so weighed down, you can't, because you know that you have messed it up big time, right? And you know that your conscience is not clear before God. Your conscience is, 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 is rising against you and condemning you. That was the exact same feeling for everyone in the Old Testament. They offer sacrifices, but they know that these sacrifices is not enough to cleanse them before God. So their conscience is still heavy. They feel the guilt and the shame and the filth and the defilement of sin, even though they're trying to come close to God. You guys are with me? And that's what he's saying here. The Old Testament sacrifices, none of it was able to make that the worshiper, the one who's trying to come close to God, have peace in his conscience and know that he is in right terms with God. Even though they offer the sacrifices, yet they know that they still feel the defilement and the shame and the guilt of sin deep inside in their hearts. Amen? Which set up the stage to the power of the blood of Jesus who can cleanse our conscience so we can serve the living God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Now let's just close with these thoughts. Verse 9 and 10. The author of Hebrews highlights three different problems with the Old Testament sacrifices. Number one, he said that it was external. He said that in verse 10. He said, it concerns only, only with external stuff. Food, drink, washings, all this stuff is from the outside, right? That's why it was a problem because all what the Old Testament did, all what the way of approaching God in the Old Testament did was just dealing with the external. Number two, it was ineffective because he told us in verse 9, it could not make the worshiper perfect in terms of their conscience, right? They offer the sacrifice, they do the washing, they eat the food and do the drinks, and yet with all of that, they still feel the defilement and the guilt and the shame of sin, right? And then it was also temporary, right? Because he said all this stuff was just being used and done until the time of reformation in verse 10, right? So he's saying that was only temporary in nature. This is not meant to be the permanent way of approaching God. The permanent way was still yet to come. It's the time of reformation. That's literally in Greek, it's something like this. The time when everything will be made right, right? The time when, when everything that is messed up will be fixed and every broken thing will be mended and things will be done right. That's the whole point of that Greek word right here. Amen? The problem with, with, with approaching God under the Old Testament way is that, number one, it was external. Number two, it was ineffective. And number three, it was temporary. Praise God that Jesus has come and he has solved every single problem with approaching God in the Old Testament. You guys are with me? The Old Testament way was external, right? What did we read about last time about the Old Covenant? That God will write it inside our heart, right? He said, I will write their laws in their hearts. Not anymore outward, but from now on they're going to be inward. Amen? It was ineffective. In their minds and in their hearts, absolutely. The Old Testament way was ineffective. He said here it could not make the worshiper perfect when it comes to conscience, right? 
But what did he say? We're gonna see, we already saw that, right, about the blood of Jesus. He said, how much more? If, he said this in verse 24, I guess. It says, if the blood of the sacrifices of the Old Testament was able to cleanse from the outward, cleanse the flesh, how much more will the blood of Jesus, who offered himself to God through the eternal spirit, will purge, cleanse your conscience from dead work to serve the living God? Amen? You can know that the blood of Jesus is far more powerful than every sin and every guilt and every shame. And you can come and serve the living God, not because you're worthy, but because the blood of Jesus is powerful. Amen? Yeah. And number three, it was temporary, right? He said, until the time of reformation. After that, right after that, verse 11, he would say something to the effect that Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, thus obtaining eternal redemption. That's what he's going to say for the, in the following verse. You guys are with me? Yes. Jesus solved every single shortcoming of the Old Testament. He solved every single problem that the Old Testament have, and every way that was wrong in approaching God in the Old Testament has been resolved once and for all in Jesus. Amen? Through Jesus, we can be changed internally. His blood is effective, and it is eternal. Amen? Let's close our eyes and pray.